Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello. Today is May 1st. Um, May Day. May Day, indeed. <laughs> um, and we've got a pretty good show for you today. We're going to be talking about trends in all different uh, forms of literature, what it means for writers, how it kind of works. Uh, but before that, why don't we get to the basic news, huh? Yes. So I have a few pieces of housekeeping today. Okay. We're into May, which means that it's time to announce our special episodes. Mm-hmm. Our query show, where we critique, you guessed it, queries, <laughs> will go live on May the 11th. The That's suspe- a Thursday. The suspense was killing me. I'm what we yeah, do I know, right? Uh, May the 11th, which is a Thursday. Our first pages show, where we critique first pages goes live on Thursday, the 25th of May. So you have plenty of time to send your first pages and queries into us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. If you are looking once May 11th rolls around and you say, hey, Laura and Eric, where are these special episodes that you've been talking about? Well, folks, they're on patreon.com. So there'll be links to it on Twitter. There are links on our website. Um, But just check it out and you do have to be a subscriber to listen so you should sign up because I think we're very helpful <laughs> well that's that's good that you think that yeah. um, I have I have one more piece of housekeeping uh-huh. and it's and it's not actually pertaining to this podcast yeah. more than it is pertaining to something I just feel like I need to tell the world about okay so I just learned that a couple of weeks ago, Kelly Rowland, who you might know as one of the members of Destiny's Child. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't know I that? know. Uh, has a book. <laughs> it's and out. It's out. It came out April 11th in uh-huh. hardcover. Uh-huh. Uh, list price is $25 in case you want it. Uh-huh. Um, and it is called Whoa Baby. And here's <laughs> what I learned, Eric. Yeah. And I'm so disappointed. Uh-huh. I learned that this book is not a book about Kelly Rowland being in Destiny's Child like and like hobnobbing with Beyonce. Uh-huh. It's literally about babies. Oh. So it's about actual babies and like having a baby instead of Queen Bay, oh, which I think man. you can understand <laughs> that I was that, that is disappointing. I was very, um, yeah, so I was like all excited. I was like there's a book about Beyonce? Yeah. What? I think it's time to write a strongly worded letter. I should. So get on there. I was like you can't you can't use baby <laughs> when when somebody that you have dirt on is bay like you just yeah. you can't anyway so that's the end of my housekeeping <laughs> um well so we've got um i feel like we it would be remiss of us to kind of get into our topic today without kind of first talking about what really feels like the bigger uh publishing news of the week which is uh the layoffs at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt um, it's obviously very disappointing for those of us in the industry. We're seeing a lot of um, colleagues, friends, um, people we know being laid off. I mean, it's all part of kind of a structured um, and planned out, you know, restructuring that HMH is having. Um, but still, it you know, it obviously hurts to see you know people have to kind of make changes to their lives. You Wait know. to see where they land, and if so, they land at all. Yeah. yeah, I mean, let's, I'll just, you know, this is from the uh, the PW article on it that came out a little bit um, earlier last week. I'll just, you know, the basic details here. Um, in March, HMH began, HMH began laying off staff and that round of layoffs, five jobs in its trade division were cut. The most recent cuts came across in all trade departments with half of the reductions taking place in the adult group and the other half in the children's group. Um, it's, yeah, I mean that, that's kind of twenty people were yeah. laid off on I think either the twenty fourth or the twenty fifth. 
Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I guess like before we really talk about it, first and foremost is, you know, our thoughts are with the people who have been laid off. Um, we hope that uh, they land on their feet, and I'm sure that they will. They're all very talented. Um, but it got us thinking, huh? It, yeah, it got us thinking not specifically about HMH and their restructuring, right. Right. but more about the the way that publishing works and, and considers how its personnel – like and what role its personnel has. So – in publishing, there's always there's a saying, you know, like it, you know that you're with a real traditional publisher mm-hmm. when the money is flowing from the publisher to the author. Right. And this 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 round of layoffs kind of made me really think about that. And it's like, is that really true? Like, is it is it is that really the best way to to talk about how a traditional publisher works. Well, so it gets. Um, well, I, I think I think the answer to your question is yes. I mean, I do think yes, that but. it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that obviously, you know, publishing is entirely based on, um, you know, getting, you know, creating successful authors, right? Like if you're doing that, you're probably doing fine. Um, but one thing I think that's really indicative of it, and I think I think Allison touched on it last time when she was on our show during our interview. Um, but like, who's considered the talent at a publishing house? Right. Like, you know, when you think of like, you know, that word in terms of personnel, like the talent, it usually means like, you know, the actor or the actress or, you know, in this case, the author. And I think that um, what goes missing there is the expertise and the necessity of all the people that kind of support those um, authors in, um, you know, in, in you know, in a publishing, in the life cycle, in the life cycle of a book. And for me... It just kind of bums me out when I see this stuff because, like, I remember, um, like, I remember being in a house before and hearing, you know, being like my first year as an editorial assistant somewhere, and being in a, um, you know, in a meeting and hearing someone say, "Well, let's just throw, let's just throw thirty-five k at it as an advance. Um, we won't even notice, and who really cares? And you know, if the book doesn't sell, it won't sell." And I just remember sitting there and thinking, "That's my entire salary." You and know? you literally make the book like, happen, right? Yeah. And like, and they're willing to take that that amount of cash. And obviously, you know, there's, you know, you know, it's not apples to apples when it comes to that sort of stuff. And but, authors you know, are very deserving of that no- money. Yeah, also, no, and, I, and that's what's interesting, right? Is like when you know when we did like our episode about the build a press, you know, people, you know, kind of got in touch with me, and I got a lot of really thoughtful notes about how it kind of sounded like I like didn't want to pay authors or something, <laughs> uh, which was you know very far from the truth. But I think what I was trying to prioritize, though was this idea that, you know, the editors are what kind of, you know, and people, you know, in, in-house are what kind of keep the lifeblood of these places going. And it just bums me out to see um, to see layoffs because it's not as though, it's not as though uh, book acquisition behavior is going to change that much, right? Like publishers are simply going to become, you know, in, in the face of, um, in the face of, I guess, you know, if you're laying people off, you know, you're having a little somewhat of an issue. You're having a cost problem. You're trying to, um, you know, consolidate or make things more efficient. But you're going to get safer, you know. You're Explain gonna, what you mean by that. Yeah. So you're going to start um, You're going to start trying to acquire and publish books that you don't feel are risky. You know, you're going to try to find, you know, like, you know, usually like memoir authors from people who have pre-existing platforms that you feel – will sell, you know, whose book will sell without that much help from the publisher, right? Like this, the people are interested in this book, regardless of how well we in-house deal with it, you know? And for me, 
it's almost kind of self-fulfilling, like the idea of a book's success or failure. Um, oftentimes, you know, the, you know, that kind of thinking is right. Like if you have an author who's got a platform and that author has fans or whatever, um, you know, the book's going to sell regardless of what kind of marketing effort or what kind of publicity effort or what sort of even editing, you know, happens for that book. But, you know, a lot of other times, you know, if you, if you don't retain talent in-house, the books aren't going to do as well. I have a story about that, yeah. like a really specific, yeah. applicable story for yeah. that. Um, so, so you know, kind of like a good editor is a good editor, and, and a good editor can take a good book and make it great. Yeah. Um, but what's also should be considered the talent is all of the support staff around that. Like yeah. I'm talking about the design, I'm talking about the marketing, yeah. I'm talking about the publicity. So I have a book that I that I sold to you know like a not not a big five, but but like a you know, mm-hmm. a press. Yeah. Let's just, let's just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, and for the first little bit of the production process, there was this amazing fast acting genius staff that were supporting the production <laughs> of this book. Right. Right. You know, they had all of these genius ideas. They were getting amazing designs that the editorial process was wonderful. And then all things that make an author happy, all things that make way. an author happy yeah. and all things that point to success in a book. Right. And so, you know, like this, this press was having incredibly, uh, incredibly heartening pre-sales figures for mm-hmm. what they thought that they were going to sell. They, yeah. they were getting all of these opportunities that that don't happen to everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. They were having all these doors open to them because they had this amazing team mm-hmm. um, a couple months before the book book came out. The both both publicists who were working on the project left mm-hmm. and those positions were not filled again. So not only was there not somebody doing that work, but there also wasn't, you know, there wasn't somebody that was passionate about it yeah. either. And yeah. so you took this amazing creativity and this 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 passionate work yeah. that was being done to support this book. And then you created a vacuum and then nobody adjusted the sales figures. Nobody adjusted the idea Uh of what would happen to this book. Yeah. And then the book came out Yep. and it didn't do great. Right. Because there was no support around. There was nobody enacting all of the things that had been thought of six months before the book came out. Well, and so that's, um, you know, that's interesting. And it kind of speaks to what I'm thinking of as sort of like this self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's like a, a publisher looks at itself and thinks these books or this program we have isn't quite working as well as we want. And the solution is never or it's rarely to, okay, what can we, you know, how do we, you know, change, you know, our strat- or approach or editorial strategy or whatever. It's who can we, you know, how can we consolidate the staff, you know? As how can though, we get more work as from the, them? As yeah. though the staff isn't the sort of thing that's going to um, – you know, make those books successful again, you know, and I just feel like so often, like the individual talents of the people working at publishers, and I'm going to say that every time we have one of these shows, because I think it's always forgotten. And, um, you know, I just feel for the people when I hear stories like this, but um, like books succeed and fail based on the people who got laid off in this, you know, thing we're looking at here. Like, those are the people whose um, you know, who can make, take, you know, I, I had an editor, you know, friend once who, you know, kind of like what you were saying, you know, making good books great. He always said that he could take, you know, he, he thought that his role was to take a book that was getting a B and get, and help it get an A. Oh. You know, and it was like, and that's the difference, right? Like, you know, editors can't f- change everything. Like, you can't make a D, an A, you know, 
but you can make a book that might otherwise have been, um, you know, nondescript, you know, mid-list, you know, something that is wasn't going to be a breakout hit and turn it into something really great. And that goes not only just for editors, but for, you know, a publicist who has, you know, the human relationships to really get it um, in front of the people who matter or a marketer who's got some idea to get it in front of fans. And it's like all these people who really know things, you know, because so much of, um, you know, I, you know, we talk a lot about talent retention on this show. And one thing that I think is so key that gets lost in the conversation about turnover is the idea of institutional knowledge. Mm. You know, it's like when you're constantly changing people, no matter how brilliant the people you're bringing in are, you're losing someone who really knew, you know, knew the house, knew the processes, knew the – Knew about the specific project. Exactly. Knew the book. Like how frustrating has that always been? Like I've had that happen a lot. Oh, it happens all the time. Where you're working on something and you've got this kind of team around it that's really passionate and then someone else comes in, like you were just saying – who just doesn't quite care as much through no fault of their own. They just haven't been staring at it as long as this other person. And like that passion and that, um, you know, that drive, it really really matters. And I think that a lot of the time, you know, I guess my point here is that, um, you know, publishing is and always will be, you know, about authors and their books. Um, But there, you know, the talent is also, I think, you know, the staff that does this stuff. And it's like. It can't be about the books if it's not also about the people who support the books. Yeah. And it's, yeah. I mean, and this is just a big, you know, sort of event session to just kind of say once more, <laughs> more that, um, you know, I just wish the best for all these people who yeah. um, have been laid I off. Have, and, I have one final kind yeah. of parting, parting yeah. point on yeah. that. Um, you know, I, I hear a lot from, from people in the publishing industry and people in the book selling side of things yeah. that, you know, like advertising and, and publicists gets books into into bookstores but it's booksellers that get books out yeah. of bookstores which yeah. means gets it sold yeah. and so i feel like if we could just kind of take that valuing of personnel from bookstores and from personal recommendations mm-hmm. and from hand selling yeah. and kind of like apply it earlier on in the process like that makes sense it does make sense doesn't it make sense i think so i don't know it anyway. feels like that's a it feels like that is just as worthy of an investment as a giant advance to a book that you feel is going to be a hit. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know. But that's that's just me. Because if it's going to be a hit, the money's going to come either way. It's just whether yeah. it's going to come right at the front or at yeah, the end. Exactly. So um, anyway. Anyway, <laughs> it's time for one of my favorite moments of the week. Yes, And please. that, ladies and gentlemen, is... The James Patterson Book of the Week. Thank goodness. I needed this this week. So this book comes out, well, if you're listening on the day print run comes out today, uh, <laughs> that is May 2nd, 2017. Mm-hmm. So this is one of our book shots yeah. books. Book shots. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is, of course, by James Patterson and with Jassy McKenzie. Uh-huh. Um, it has a new sticker on the cover, so you know it just came out. Wait, wait, wait a n- I'm looking at the cover now. A new sticker. Yeah, it, well, it has. It's not really a sticker. It's printed yeah, on there. I it see says it, new. It's like a little badge. It says new. Yeah, I don't know what that's about, but I like it. I like it. Well, it's so hard to know which James Patterson books are new. That so is many of them. accurate. That's probably why. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, like see, different rules for these James Patterson books. There you know, are, like and we, you know what? We can blurb ourselves. We got to remind <laughs> the readers which are new. Like it's it's wild. And there are genius people supporting James Patterson who know all of these crazy rules. Mm-hmm. And if they were to get let go and they were to hire somebody else, they wouldn't know the rules. And then we couldn't talk <laughs> about them on this podcast. <laughs> okay, let's have the book. So this book is 
private colon gold. <laughs> private gold with a colon in the middle. Mm-hmm. Here's the blurb. Money, betrayal, murder. That's a private conversation. Private so, is both italicized and uh, capitalized like a proper noun. But also, is that a conversation? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, like, I guess, I, you know, not with words. <laughs> with feelings. With feelings and actions. All right, keep going. Uh, that's a private conversation. Hired to protect a visiting American woman, Private Johannesburg's Joey Montague is hoping for a routine job looking after a nervous tourist. After the apparent suicide of his business partner, he can't handle much more. But this case is not all what it seems, and neither is his partner's death. Hmm. Um, man. Can I I tell you one thing I really appreciate (laughs) about the James Patterson books? Uh Uh-huh. He really takes the the wordplay to another yeah. level. So I th- I'm assuming that this 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 book takes place in Johannesburg, but yeah, but so so the company is private. So I'm guessing it's like a PI or yeah, like yeah, some yeah. sort of private security yeah. thing. And it also means, you know, like secrets and I appreciate it. Is all yeah. I'm saying. So Look for that uh, in stores and online I think, tomorrow. I think an important point here is that it's got a little description of what a bookshot is, and one of the bullet points is that it's impossible to stop reading. Um, I found a bookshot in the wild. Did you? The other day. At in a, print? U- yeah, at a used bookstore. Don't tell in, James. Yeah, up in Georgetown, Colorado um, over the weekend. It was uh, just like it was like this little library. No, it wasn't even a, a used bookstore. It was a library. And they were having like one oh of the those, library sale. They were having like a library sale, and for fifty cents, I almost bought this uh, this bookshot, but but I did not. Alas, uh, Eric, you know it was impossible to stop reading. I know you that's why I couldn't buy it because like what was I going to do? I have a life to live. Yeah, but you. Um, but here's also another fact of bookshots: <laughs> it's a novel you can devour in a few hours. <sighs> so you could have just read it on the plane today. I know you could have. Yeah. I was and too what did you sleepy. do instead? Nothing. Tried to die. I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so that's the James Patterson book of the week. So we're talking about trends this week. We are talking about trends this week. Why are we talking about trends this week, Laura? So I I've been thinking a lot about my representative categories. Yeah. I just redid them. Um, I am going to a conference this weekend and, uh-huh. y- you know, like I, I've just, I've just been, I've been thinking on, you know, I've had queries on the mind. Yeah. Um, and I'm coming to a close with my 500 queries hashtag yeah. on Twitter. Right. I'm at like 430 or something like that. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of books that I turn down that I get queried that are, that I turn down simply because they're saturated in the market. They're too trendy or the trend is over. You couldn't sell it regardless of how good the book is. Regardless of how good the book is. So a good example of that, um, zombies, vampires, superheroes, empaths, like I can – reapers, angels, I can go on forever. Just sort of these literal things. Yes. That happen, yeah. Correct. Um, And so I got to thinking on – why trends happen and like what are they? Because mm-hmm. there are certain categories that I represent and certain categories that you represent that aren't really as um, – that don't really have to deal with the whole trend thing. 
so let's let's start there. Um, a trend, I think. Let's just like you know define a term here for a second. Um, you know, a trend is um, you know just like I guess a comp a pattern in you know some literal element in a book. Yeah. Um, that just keeps – like you're saying, you know, like a vampire or something that you kind of becomes hot where people want books or stories about a certain thing. Like on, that I don't, I don't really treat it as like thematic usually I think in the way we're talking about. It. Obviously, there are like thematic trends. But um, like I think we're more speaking about literal things in the story. Yeah. Right. Yep. So um, like a location, like New right. Orleans is super hot all the time. Chicago's super hot. Right. You know, like all of these things. Yeah. So we're talking locations. We're talking – um, elements to the story, specifically characters. Sure. And so I think the reason that this kind of, you know, trend conversation could be interesting is because it's like you say, um, it's something that affects uh, different genres differently. Yeah. And so, like, I feel like some um, categories of books are very, very beholden to trends to the point that authors are often researching them and wondering about them. Chasing before, the next Chasing one. them before they've even begun writing. And then there are other genres where, um, you know, you're just sitting down to write the book you're, you want to write and you're going to kind of ask questions about whether or not it fits in the marketplace a little, a little later, you know. So, like, why don't we start here? Like, which genres or categories, whatever, whatever you want to call it, um, do you feel – are most beholden to this idea of like trend setting or chasing or um, you know what I mean? Yeah. So so the ones that I and and to be fair, these aren't all of them. They're just the ones that I see a lot. Yeah. Are young adult uh-huh. category, um, and then as far as genres, specifically science fiction and fantasy, and like I think I think the easiest one to point to is like paranormal literature. Yeah. Um, which is which is a subgenre of science fiction and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um. And so I was thinking about today, like, why these are trendy. And, you know, like, the easy thing that I always say, you know, I'm always like, oh, I can't do vampires right now. People go, why? Say, well, vampires were a thing, you know, Stephanie Meyer, et cetera. And then werewolves became a thing. And then mermaids tried to be a thing for a little bit, and they didn't quite take. (laughs) Well, so let's (laughs) let's back up for a second. Okay. Why? Because I think the reason a trend becomes a trend is also important. So like why let's let's start with this very basic question. Sure. Why do you think vampires became a thing? Well, okay. So you I You know what I mean? Like yeah. let's get there first because I think that I think that's an important starting point because one facet of a trend is that for a while it really works. It really resonates. Oh, absolutely. And there's something about it that really hits a readership and I think it's interesting to kind of dissect, okay, what it, what is it about this seemingly innocuous literal thing? in a book that kind of can catch fire and then what makes it get hot and then what makes it kind of slow down and need us to move to the next thing, you know? Yeah, that's that's great. Um, so I think, you know, vampires have been in the public's eye, at least in Western American and, and British culture for, you know, since Dracula, yeah. right? Since Bram Stoker. Yeah. Um, and it kind of comes and goes. And there's something about vampires specifically. Yeah. You know, they're animalistic, but yeah. they're also human. They, you know, they live forever. Yeah. So that's also a huge thing. And they're also, um, you know, very beholden to the id and they're very yeah. beholden to, you, you know, like con- literally consuming other people to to stay alive. Mm-hmm. And there's And there's something about that, about relations with others and – 
and that power and what you do with power mm-hmm. and that level of secrecy. And then it's, you know, it's also kind of romantic because they're like of all the other stuff that goes with it. You well, know, it's like, intimate to eat another it's person. Very, it is. That's what it is. It's very yeah. intimate. Right. You know, it's very sexual. Like right. it's penetration. Right. It's blood. Right. And, you know, all of that. So. So you're vampires hitting, got hot. Yeah. Vampires are sexy. Like vampires have always been sexy. Uh-huh. Right. Um, you know, since like Mina's bust was heaving in the middle of the moors, like it's, <laughs> they've always been sexy. Um, yeah. And I think there are two reasons why trends end and shift, specifically in YA they shift. Uh-huh. They're, you know, I think to me it makes a very – it makes a very clear sense. There, there's a very clear reason why it goes from vampires to werewolves. Okay. Um, and there's two reasons. First, why vampires kind of were tired. Sure. Um, one is because in traditional publishing, there is a certain number of books that fit on a list in any given season. And they just like had enough of them. So let's, let's stop there for a okay. second because I think that that is um, – like when you know, I think writers are pretty good about grasping the idea of okay, there's a lot of you know there there are a lot of vampire books, and as such, a vampire book might not sell that well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that like the inner like the behind the scenes of why that is might happen, and I think it's not necessarily. I think there's a distinction to be made between readers being sick of it and a list not having space for it. There's definitely you know what I mean. Yeah, there's yeah. definitely. You know, if you like a vampire book, you're going to read a shit ton of vampire books. Right. You know, like if, it, and it doesn't matter when they're published. Yeah. But if you're a publisher, you can't hang – like it doesn't make financial sense to put out four vampire books in, in one season, season right. because they're going to be competing with each right. other. Right. They're not going – you know, it just doesn't make sense. Right. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why it's slowed down because uh-huh. as more and more books came out, they started mm-hmm. to compete a little bit more, so it didn't make financial sense for them to have as many spaces on the list. Yeah. The second reason why it stopped being trendy uh-huh. is because there were so many books that for the short period of time, the stories stopped presenting a fresh, exciting new side mm-hmm. to the lore and the legend. Yeah. Right? You know, like... People always make fun of Twilight for having a sparkly vampire, but like that changed the game. Like that, <laughs> it literally presented another side of the vampire, yeah. you know? And I hate, and I hate to defend Stephanie Meyer and that dreck of a series, but like, it, I know, Woo. I have feelings, but you know, from, from like a trend making standpoint, it makes perfect sense that a book like that, yeah. that kind of took all of the things that we love about it and kind of made it more approachable. Yeah. It, it makes sense, yeah. right? Well, so um, you say something interesting there about you know not getting you know a fresh take and maybe the story saying the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and let, so let's before we get to like why werewolves next, let's take a step to like a different genre. Okay. Because I think that there's something interesting there with the trend being um, something a little bit even more superficial than maybe a vampire, like we were talking earlier today about the, the you know this idea and maybe like in romance novels where. You know, readers come looking for the same plot points. Yes. Right? And so the trend is less about um, what happens in the story or who's in it and more maybe like more like decor- decorational things, you yeah, know, like settings. setting it's, or it's like more, what the yeah. – Yeah, it's it's more setting. So like one thing, I was, at a, I was at a romance conference not too long ago and 
an editor mentioned that she was sick. She loved small towns. And uh-huh. small like small town is always going to be a, a yeah. subset of a setting right. in yeah. you know cuz every you know people from small towns read romance novels. So that's always yeah. going to be evergreen, right? Yeah. Um but they're really sick of small town cupcake shops. <laughs> so that's that's hilarious to me. Yeah. Um because it speaks it just speaks to the kind of individual natures of some of these categories, right? Because it blows my mind as someone who doesn't kind of who doesn't really work in you know romance or YA um, that someone could have that specific of a substantive complaint. You know, like the idea of seeing so many books specifically set in cupcake shops that you would then be sick of them and need to make it explicitly clear that you don't want to see them. That's fascinating to me because, like, I feel like in other genres, you know, you don't necessarily have that. Um, I don't want to say it's a problem because it's not. It's a feature. You know, this idea that, um, you know, you're kind of taking the same, you know, path of a story and setting it around whatever is kind of grabbing, you know, the national attention. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you know, with the cupcake shop, you know, that was, you know, that was popular for yeah. a while, right? Well, like people well, really so into cupcakes. The story, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the story it's, with romance is 100% fantasy. You know, it follows the same beats. It's got, right. you know, the same right. structure. And so what you take from real life is not the story. What you take from real life is the setting. And when everybody and their mother had a cupcake shop opening in their town. That's where people that's were having you, their romantic fantasies. That's Yeah, that's where you have your romantic yeah. fan. I mean, because like what's yeah. sexier than frosting, right? I mean, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, that, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think that so you get, you know, in that genre, you know, or that I don't know. Would know it's what, a genre. Genre category. Um, but – the shift in trends is it's sort of peripheral, right? Yeah. You're kind of taking the same thing and, you know, setting it in different sort of places, giving it a little flavor based on It'd where be you are. It'd be just as easy to take that book. Like if if the editor really loved the book but it was set in a cupcake shop yeah. and they already had a cupcake shop book, they could go, you know, could you turn it into a like a pretzel and sausage place? Yeah. And then and they'd be able it'd to. be fine. Yeah. It would be totally fine. And so like that that thinking to me is really – because that kind of speaks to – um, I, w- I always want to call it reverse engineering that mm-hmm. writers do when they talk about this stuff. And, you know, we get a lot of these, like, when we, whenever we send out, like, a call for questions um, for the show, think, people always ask us those kind of market questions. They're always really specific to me. It's always like, is this specific kind of book, you know, still marketable or should I or, – or even should I write this sort of thing? And to me, that always blows my mind because it's like I, – I guess I would have never thought to – like try to have some t- handle on like you know I wouldn't never base I would never base my setting on what was like you know trendy in them I would just write the book I wanted to write you know and then kind of figure out how to place it later but that's not how these authors and these other genres work. Well, I think going and, back to the the vampire thing, yeah. it kind of makes sense because yeah. you know you don't want to write something that's already been written before and like with vampires for example. There was a real sense for a really long time, and it, it kind of still is. I'm going to give it, like, three or four more years. Um, but there's this sense that, like, you don't necessarily have something else to add, and it's not really going to be as worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. Um, which kind of brings brings us to why going from vampires to werewolves makes sense. Right. And it's because I, I feel like that kind of progression of trends is, is a type of reverse engineering. Mm-hmm. So I feel like... Okay, you take you take the qualities of a vampire, right? Yeah. You know, unnaturally long lives, hard to kill, dangerous to humans, um, have some sort of animalistic tendencies. You see, that's where it in, could, yeah. So, like, all of these things that are very similar, if, if you don't have 
something fresh to say on that, you look for another way to be fresh with it. And so yeah. what what fits all of the same boxes as yeah. a vampire but isn't a vampire? Yeah. A werewolf. Yeah, see, that's that's really interesting to me because um, I even think that, you know, that transition happens on deeper than the ones you just listed. You know, the kind of the things you were talking about earlier, you know, kind of, um, you know, sensuality on, you know, intimacy mm-hmm. on the secrets, you know, all these very abstract ideas that get, you know, very like magnetic ideas that people love to think about that kind of get embodied. Like those aren't going to go away, right? Like when vampires went away, all the things people liked about vampires did not go away. No, they just right? turned into we something just had else. To, we just had to – you have to find a different thing to, you know, to put it in because people get kind of – like you're saying, they get kind of tired yeah. of um, – you know the ta- you know the all the lo- the literal stuff and the lore and the stuff that you know that gets attached to a vampire. So we need something else to talk about the same ideas, and I find that I find that kind of conversation interesting because it's so different. I think, and maybe people will disagree with me, but it feels very different than how like literary fiction works. Like when people are writing specifically, like for like you know when it's not a quote-unquote genre novel, and obviously we've spent a lot of time on this show talking about why... What is genre and what's yeah, why not that and that. that line is really blurred and kind of silly at times, but like, um, you know, in Litvik, I get the sense that the trends aren't necessarily coming from the, you know, the writers trying to create these things beforehand. Like, one thing that always stands out to me, like I was just saying, um, is YA authors and genre fiction authors are really, really hyper aware of the market. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they're aware of the market before they even start writing the they're, book. They're and aware they, of how books and those specific ideas and those characters that are more than just individuals yeah. are in conversation with the entire genre. rest of the with genre. With the entire genre, yeah. which it's, is probably something, you know, that probably speaks yeah. somewhat in there to the definition of what genre means. Yeah, but, they're in conversation um, with every other but, work. So like that, that kind of thing feels way more heightened in those in those uh, categories, as opposed to litfic, which to me feels like people are more just setting out to write the book. They feel you know they're they're doing less like market research, but like no one's basing their uh, quote unquote great American novel, you know, based on some how Lincoln the Bardo is exactly is like, like, yeah. like I, they're not like trying to crowdsource their you know their thematic ideas. You know, they're just writing and then they're going to try to figure out how to place it later. And I mean, I think that um, what that leads to is the trends in literary fiction end up happening way more on the acquisition side mm. or the you know the agent and editor side as opposed to the writer side because to me it seems like everybody's kind of writing all the books that they're going to write and i'm not sure that that shifts as much as people's taste like on the professional side so give us shifts. an example of a of a kind of litfic style trend well i mean we you know you know you and i were talking about this earlier but like um you know the you know, the literary thriller, you know, like sure. Gone Girl, you know, girl, girl, on a, on a girl on a Train. And you can see right there, like, you know, you can kind of see how these two things sort of um, lead to one another. And I think the, the way that happens is let – I don't think that all of a sudden everybody started writing literary thrillers in that vein. What I think happened was that people – was that editors saw one succeed. They decided with that knowledge that something was succeeding to take another look at the slush pile they already had. And saw, okay, hey, I actually do have something in this pile that maybe I had been ignoring before, but now I have more reason to believe myself. So they, they're more inclined to pick it up. Plus, then they can kind of give it, you know, an aesthetic and a package and a title that's sort of reminiscent of, um, 
you know, what's out there and being successful. But to me, it's not that, like, I guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to me the fundamental difference I'm trying to get at here is that in YA and genre fiction, the writing, the books that people are writing changes a lot more rapidly than the books that people are writing in kind of lit fic or adult stuff. I would agree. Um, because um, the way trends change there is more about um, just kind of the fickle tastes of editors, and they're always trying to do it based on some breakout precedent, you know, which is why every book ends up with the word girl in the title or, <laughs> or, fire. or fire or city or, you know what I mean? Like, it's all like this kind of, it's this sort of... It's packaging. Yeah. It's this never-ending kind of... Um, game of telephone between these books, right? Like this book sounds kind of like this one, which then sounds kind of like this one, which then sounds kind of like this one. And so instead of them being in actual conversation, the way all vampire books are in conversation with all the other vampire yeah. books, it's safe to say that it's really just the packaging that's trying to echo that. Well, I think in literary I mean, I, fiction? It, to me, it's it's deeper than it's deeper than the packaging. I just think that there's a lot yeah. of I just think that acquisitions taste change. Um, and writers aren't ne- in litfic aren't necessarily as quick to react to that as they are in um, YA or genre because they're much more they're much better at asking about it and being aware about it and like kind of understanding the field they're trying to understanding the shelf they're trying to fit their book into you know like litfic writers are you know, maybe they have you know there's certain writers that like you know there's inspiration that's happening there's all these things you know every, well, there's inspiration for everybody every book is you know in conversation with other books but. Um, to me, what's changing in litfic is um, it's the it's the choice of what gets bought. Like I think that a, a really really great novel um, could see its publication prospects totally change by you know the changing in the market. Right, like it could be totally out of vogue once, and then it could come back, it get resubmitted some other time, and then suddenly it gets sold without changing a word of it. It just so happens that suddenly editors feel like this sort of thing could work, and um, whereas in the different, you know, in the other styles of fiction, writers I think are literally writing different things. Yeah. You know, before you know, beforehand, and you see it, you see evidence of that all the time because they're asking, they're saying, should I write, you know, this or this or this? Like, what do you think is going to sell? And I don't know. I just find it interesting. Like to me, um, when it comes to trends, though, you know, the genre fiction and um, you know the why those people are much more market conscious. So I and I want to. I feel like this is going to be important for our listeners. I kind of want to put a pin in yeah. the should I write this yeah. and kind of spend a little bit of time on it. Yeah. Um, the answer is yes. Well, so let's make sure we um, understand what should I write this means. So should I write this thing that is trendy or this thing that was trendy a year ago? What if I can't sell this? If it's the book you want to write, you should write it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If it's the book you want to write, you should write it yeah. because a book that you want to write is going to be far and away better than the book that you it's, don't want to write. It's the book you're gonna. It's the book you're going to produce the best. Yeah. Also, consider that humans are fickle beings. That includes the publishing industry, yeah. and that everything happens on a pendulum. Yeah. You know, like vampires have, like, we're not created by Stephanie Meyer. Like, vampires <laughs> yeah. have been around yeah. for hundreds of yeah. years, and you right. know what? There was Dracula, and then there was Anne Rice, and I'm sure there yeah. were people in between, and then there yeah. was Stephanie Meyer, and guess what? Like. Oh, and there was uh, Charlene Harris, mm-hmm. who also happened before, Yeah, you know. And so there's all of these authors who just, like, came in at the right point of the pendulum. And so when I mentioned a little bit earlier that I'm giving vampires, you know, another three, four years, 
that's when I'm going to start saying, send me your fucking vampire books because I love the vampire books. Yeah. One of my favorite books in the entire world is a vampire book. And it will be because it's in my sense is that when that happens, when it swings back, it's not going to be because you suddenly have fallen back in love with vampires. It's because all those same concepts that the vampire embodied that then got repurposed into these other creatures and motifs. Are swinging back around. It's it's suddenly fresh again to put it this way, even as it's the same, you know, the sort of the same thematic ideas that yeah. kind of get embodied. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I still read vampire books. I read a vampire book three weeks ago. Well, that's the thing, right? It's like one <laughs> thing that's different than, you know, one thing that needs to be separated from the conversation on trend is the conversation on quality. Yeah. And that gets to my point that, um, uh, like I was saying a second ago, which is like a book, someone writes a book. It's a very, very good book. Objectively, editorial, this is a good book. Um, its publication prospects could change wildly from year to year. Yeah. You know, and it, but that doesn't mean that the book is getting more or less good. It means that the tastes and the trends around it are kind of, you know, the context that surrounds it are shifting. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that you would have lots and lots of vampire books that you really, really like, even as yeah. you're totally sick of them from a publication perspective right yeah. now, you know, like, um, yeah, I don't know. You know I, think I mean, and I tell I tell my, you know, the authors that have signed with me, you know, I have one that has like a book that I absolutely <coughs> cannot sell right now. Right. And she knows this and so it's just in a drawer and it's ready. Yeah. It's ready for the the moment that we can sell it again. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, that wouldn't be a book that I would sign her for if I tried to sign her right now. It wasn't even yeah. a book that I signed her for originally, but it's a book that I look forward to selling. And you feel, and even as it looks, um, you know, tricky right now, you know, its moment will come because you know that regardless of trend, that book is good. Yeah, I want to. I want to say one more thing yeah. about the difference between the the trendiness of literary fiction yeah. and young yeah. adult fiction. I think it's also really important to consider the the time spans that you have the attention of the audience. So if you consider mm. young adult literature, yeah. for example, you have. You know, for most readers, probably about a two to six year window yeah. when people are reading these books, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it makes sense that there are fewer spaces in the publisher's list and there are fewer spaces in a reader's TBR list mm -hmm. for a book about XYZ thing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's just not enough space. Whereas, you know, you read, you know, adult fiction presumably from the time you're a teenager all the way until you die. Yeah. Like that's a really, yeah. really long time. And yeah. so there isn't that kind of frenetic need to chase all of the purchasing power that a teenager might yeah. have. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point, yeah. So huh. if especially if you're writing, you know, if, if you're writing stuff for children and you're writing stuff, you know, that, that, that definitely is prey to that trendiness, like – just give it a little bit. You're going to be alive a lot longer than these trends are. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? It's like so um, I guess it's there's something hopeful about it, right? Because you see people get so frustrated or they say, oh, man, I feel like I've written this good book, but it's not just it's just not in vogue right now or I just missed the window. And that's the other thing, right? It's like trends happen or you see the end result of trends like a Two year. Years. Yeah, a year after all those decisions have been made. Yeah. Right? You didn't just miss Ex the window. Exactly. You're way Exactly. Far. And you and the problem with it is you don't see it when the books are being bought. Like all those vampire books got bought well before you saw any of them. You know, and then they all came out and 
and then all the writers who weren't in these, um, you know, in-house publication meetings, you know, realize, oh, hey, these books are selling. These books are great. I want to write these. And it's like, well, it's it's tricky to trace trends, uh, to trace trends, to chase trends because you're already you're already behind. You're already and, behind. And that should be freeing in a way. You know, it's like just write the book that you've got and just trust that its moment is going to come because moments are constantly changing. And if you're constantly in conversation with the genre that you're writing, you're going to kind of intuit those trends anyway. Yeah. Like you don't need for me to tell you <clears throat> that werewolves came after vampires. You know, like you don't need me to tell you, you that. It. You can feel yeah. it. You can it, like if you are thinking hard about what it is that you're reading and what it is that you're writing, like you'll figure it out. And like, ideally you'll be on time. Well, so that kind of gets, um, you know, the last, you know, kind of on the other side of the coin here that I think is worth mentioning is, uh, you know, I work with, I work with a lot of um, sort of adult, almost academic nonfiction, right? Which I want to know about this. I'm excited (laughs) about this. Yeah, I know. Um, Which wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't think totally fall into, um, you know, this this sort of conversation about, like, little poppy trends. But, like, it's, you know, these same kind of conversations happen. It just happens in a totally different way. Like, for me, you know, with, like, romance, the trends are sort of circumstance and context-based or setting-based. With uh, genre fiction, it's about these, you know, the creatures and kind of the different ways of representing these kind of timeless ideas. And with nonfiction, to me, the thing that's always changing and kind of authors are always reacting to is... Um, like structure of the book. Really? Which sounds kind of like bland and silly, but like you kind of get these, you know, um, these new ways of writing, you know, kind of the history, you know, everyone always, you know, I get a lot of history and stuff and like that book, um, you know, Salt came out. I forget who, when it it was a few years ago. Is Salt about literal salt? Yeah, so it's a book about, it's a great book. I think it won something, but it's it's about, uh, you know, the history of, it's like using this idea of salt as a means of telling the entire human history, right? Like a very, it's the idea is kind of like an object history, right? Like you use this one item to sort of tell the history of the world. And so suddenly no one, like the trend was not salt. <laughs> the trend, <laughs> but the trend became, okay, object history. And, you know, if I'm a scientist, then I'm going to write about this specific scientific thing that kind of tells the story. If I'm a historian, I can pick something else. Um, or like you know every um, you know every author thinks you know nonfiction. I can write about hats instead. Right, exa- you know you get these kind of weird that don't have anything to do with one another in terms of um, content, but you know structure is constantly changing around whatever's popular. Yeah. You know, like everyone thinks they've written um, guns, germs, and steel in nonfiction. <laughs> you know. And or everybody writes like Mary Roach because exa- they pick one central subject and then they they have right. little essays surrounding right, right, right. that subject. Exactly. So it's less about um, you know the trends in nonfiction. And I you know I sign a lot of authors um, who I I think are talented and have written other things, but don't even have like a book proposal or anything yet. Oh, that's right. Nonfiction. And, the books aren't already written. Which is in, which is interesting because you end up like when you talk about reacting and being able to kind of move swiftly based on trends, you can do it a lot faster in nonfiction because you don't have to have written the book. <laughs> so like, you know, I, I have some authors who it's like we've sent we've sent something out, um, you know, gotten some feedback. It's come back, you know, we've, okay, let's make some tweaks. And you're literally able to change the fundamentals of the project. The structure of the book. Because the book isn't written yet. What? And it's, it's really... That just blows my no, mind. No, it's, it's really cool and it's really fascinating, I think, because... Um, you know, like we, you know, I have one book that we shifted from this sort of episodic look that was kind of centered on, you know, this one idea to instead being a chronological history, you know, and it's like, it's, 
you know, those kind of shifts, they feel really, you know, they would be major if this was a finished manuscript. And it would be major if it was like a fiction manuscript. It would take months and months and months and months. It would take, oh, I mean, it would take, a, yeah, it would be forever. But like in a proposal, you know, in a proposal stage, you can kind of tweak this stuff. And so like, um, I don't know, I, I find it, I find that kind of stuff really interesting, you know, chasing trends in nonfiction because it can happen so rapidly and so fast because the whole idea is just simply to think of the books. Like, you know, you don't have to have written anything until someone says, yes, I want to see that, um, which makes it fun. It makes it scary. It means that you got to, you know, you can promise huge things and then suddenly have to deliver them. Like you can, <laughs> you can bite off more than, you know, I've worked with a lot of authors who who wrote these proposals for just these grand things that were kind of, you know, in some tradition of whatever big book it was. I can think, oh, well, so I was a science editor for a while, right? Mm, mm-hmm. And everyone... Um, you know, at, at, uh, this was at Oxford, and Oxford is the original publisher of uh, Richard Dawkins. And a lot of the authors we submitted were always using him as a comp, right? Like they were like, "We've got, I've got this book. It's kind of like the Dawkins book." And it's like it's real hard to be Richard and it's Dawkins. Like, it's, that sounds fine on paper, and you know, I read you read these proposals, and you get all exhilarated, right? About like, "Oh man, this book is the Dawkins book." And then it's like, it's fine to write a proposal saying you're going to do that. And then it's another thing to write the book, you know? And so oftentimes, like, you know, the real work, like nonfiction, some of the editing, um, it can be pretty laborious. Speaking of talent, yeah. yeah, Because you have to, you know, because all of nonfiction is bought on a promise, right? And, like, usually there's, like, a sample chapter, an introduction or something, but, like, that's not the book. Like, and, you know, nonfiction is, like, more expensive, so you're constantly asking the question, would someone pay $30 to read this chapter? You know what I mean? It's like um, – but anyway, like, the idea as it relates to trends is that, um, you know, it kind of hinges less on literal stuff. Like, you know, no one else I don't think wrote – you know, it's like, here's a different take on salt. You know, it's <laughs> – here's a different here, – here's using that book's structure to my own completely separate subject matter. So what's the um, super hot <laughs> – What's what's the super hot trend in nonfiction now? Oh, let's see. Um, well, so I do a lot of science stuff, and like, so the big thing right now is like giant, like huge scale um, histories. Like, when you say huge scale, I mean like you know going like from centuries, you know, then and now, like evolutionary histories or like geological histories or like you know, like the Elizabeth Colbert book recently, though I'm reading it right now. It's called like the Sixth Extinction. Kind of takes a look at. Um, you know, this whole stretch of geologic time and kind of talks about, you know, basically using like to me what seems in is like giant wide lenses mm. and being able to kind of talk specifically at different points and going at this like breakneck chronological pace while also being specific. Um, you know, I'm seeing a lot of that right now, at least as it pertains to specifically science. I mean, that's going to be different. Obviously, when I, I'm talking about a very certain kind of nonfiction, like that's obviously not true of, you know, memoir or lifestyle books or any of the other hundreds of nonfiction categories I'm kind of talking about, the more academic stuff. But um, it's interesting to watch people react so quickly to those kind of things. I don't know. Interesting. Hmm. Should we do a right tip? I think we should. I think we should. So our right tip this week is pretty simple. Just explore your writing style. Mm-hmm. You know, every every book is different. Every writer is different. And, you know, I will say over and over and over again that there's no right way to write a book except what gets it written, yeah. right? And so I, I, have, I have an author who would always just kind of write flying by the seat of her pants mm-hmm. and then has recently gotten the opportunity to write via outline. 
huh. and has decided that that's the way that she's going to write all the books now. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have I, I know other authors who it makes more sense in their brain to write the synopsis first. But mm-hmm. that's not something that developed until a couple of books in. Right. And so, you know, for you, one way to write might work only one way. Mm-hmm. Some of you, all of them might work. Some of you might, you know, it might depend on the project. So give yourself permission to, you know, if something's not working, just change it up. Yeah. Just change Try it a different up. Something. Yep. Yeah. Just, 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 just turn it on <laughs> its head. Di- pick a different way of tr- approaching it. Yeah. You know? Like, what if I don't plan out this whole entire chapter? What will happen? Well, the worst case scenario is that you'll delete it. Yeah, I was going to say, you can always just throw it away. You yeah. Know? Exactly. But like often that kind of stuff jars loose. Like changing, I think maybe the salient point there is like, you know, if you're stuck, change the way you're trying to get through the mud, you know? And I don't know. I think it's interesting. Yeah. So that is your right tip of the week. Thank you so much for joining us on this, our trendiest episode mm. of Print Run. Quite trendy. Uh, remember that our May Query show goes live Thursday the 11th. Our first pages show goes live Thursday the 25th. Send us your queries and first pages at printrunpodcast at gmail.com, and we will see you next week. See ya. See ya.